Mac Power Users, episode 330. Mac Power Users Live, recorded on July 5th, 2016. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal, David Sparks. Hey, David. Hello, Katie Floyd. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, welcome back to another one of these uh, feedback shows. I guess we won't call it a live show this week, since we aren't exactly recording in front of our live audience. Yeah, but we still have a ton of great feedback. I I, you know, I always love the hearing from the Mac Power Users listeners. They've always got something to add. Um, and as is typical with our MPU feedback shows, uh, we also do have a guest. So please join me in welcoming uh, one of our Mac Power Users listeners who actually uh, submitted an audio comment. Uh, and we found that interesting and wanted to have him join us. Uh, please welcome Ruben to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. That's no problem. Ruben, we're crossing the third rail with you today on the Mac Power Users. Cause, uh, yeah. So gang, so gang Ruben wrote in and said, look. Uh, I love Mac Power Users, but I have to use a PC at work. And I want to use my Mac Power Users workflows on my PC at work, but obviously there's a couple problems there. And Ruben has come up with some really great solutions to do a lot of the things we talk about on the show on a PC. So for, you know, 15 minutes or so here, we're going to talk about PC software. Why not, right? Well, I think... um I think we're going to talk about how how do you get along when you're stuck on a PC in the work world and how do you get some of the the workflows that you've set up in your Mac world to work while you're on a PC. And that's probably something that's applicable to a lot of our listeners. Yeah, I, I think it's actually quite smart. A lot of the things Ruben's done and um, and some of it is pretty uh, <laughs> some of it's pretty clever. So I think we should just get started, Ruben. Uh, now we don't want to talk about your job. We're, we're, we don't want you to become internet famous. You're, you want to stay low key. Uh, yeah, I'm very important. Okay, we're going to keep lay low on that. But but there's some things you're doing that everybody's doing. Um, and and I wanted to talk about a few of the PC apps you're using to get these workflows running. And the first one that you mentioned actually a couple times is Notepad plus plus. Tell me about that. Yeah, Notepad++. So one of the, the big restrictions and where I'm at is that I can't install software. And so I'm kind of stuck with a lot of things that are already installed and Notepad just runs. I don't, I'm not sure why it's like that. It doesn't call on any important DLLs or something, but it, um, you can just run the, the exe and, um, despite restrictions at work, I'm still able to use it. And so Notepad++ is not the Microsoft Notepad. It's It's got two pluses, mm-hmm. which is it's twice the plus, right? Yeah, so, it's. A, I think it was created for uh, coders and people of that, of that uh, what do you call it, that persuasion. Yeah, and, and so what are you using it for? I'm using it as a, a text expander replacement mostly, and I needed something to do lots of uh, reg exits, uh, reg exits. Um, just search and replace random texts using uh, patterns. Now, now we uh, we talked about um, in prep for the show. You know, they've got Text Expander has a PC version now, but the problem that Ruben has is they are so locked down at his work that you can't even run Text Expander on your PC. No, that's the that's the. I love the idea of Text Expander. I love using it. I just can't. I'm not allowed to basically. Yeah. So, so what are you doing in Notepad? Um, so it, it, it allows you to route, run regular expressions within the application. Is that the, the trick? That's one of them. Um, for the text expander bit, it 
you're you're able to record macros and it i use uh, a search and replace for you know my snippets into the main words and i um i assign a, a shortcut key to that okay so but the the question i guess is um so how are you triggering the macro? I mean, do you have to go back and manually run the search and replace to do the text expansion or, or is it doing it automatically? Uh, no, once the text is entered, I type in, uh, I think, uh, control delete or yeah. control insert. And it, it goes through the entire thing and replaces all the, all the words I've typed in before. Okay. Gotcha. So, so once you finish the document, you run a, essentially a script. And it goes and finds everything and replaces it. Yep. And that's really a regular expressions type thing as well. Um, uh, it's just be. kind of a variant of the other stuff you're doing with regular expressions, I would guess. It could be. Um, yeah, I, I've one for. I have one for deleting uh, date lines or date marks, date time marks, and so it it takes my my list of entries and to just bullet bulletize them without any uh, um, timestamps. Nice. And that's awesome for that, too. Another thing we hear from listeners all the time is they say, look, I love OmniFocus. I have to use a PC at work. And I'm trying to figure out the best way to go about doing that. And uh, you are dealing with that problem as well, right? Yeah, I really, really love OmniFocus, except I can't. I, again, I can't use it. And using it on my phone is isn't really possible because the the data that I need to use it on is on mostly on the PC, so it's better to keep it all all over there. Okay, so how are you doing that? Um, I'm using OneNote mo mostly. So that's Microsoft OneNote. We've talked about that quite a bit on the show in the last couple months. A lot of people are really getting into that. And OneNote is is, is typically installed by default with most uh, Microsoft Office installations. So this is probably something that if you're working on a PC, you probably already have on your on your PC. Mm-hmm. So now, how does that interface with OmniFocus, or does it? Does it just replace it? It just replaces it. I don't. I have my work life, yeah, on the PC, and I have my my home life on my my phones anywhere else. Yeah. So you were able to kind of bake up your own GTD system using OneNote, right? So OneNote has a lots of linking abilities, and so I use the. It's basically a paper GTD system, but on the computer, and I'm able to link. Um, all my my notes together to a single dashboard. So that, that's it's, interesting. So um, yeah, because they can you can link pages to each other in OneNote. Is that mm -hmm. how you like the inter internal hyperlinking? I think they call it or something like that. Yes, uh, it doesn't get enough credit, but for stuff like this, it is super useful. All right, well, where are the problems that you've run into using this system? I mean, are there any like friction points you're seeing? Uh, no, anything. Well, not. I can't think of any offhand right now. Like all there's, there's a lot of stuff that it doesn't do. Like it doesn't have, like the notification isn't the same as a uh, as as OmniFocus. Like it'll, I can create a tag that turns red or light red depending on how close to its status data it is. But it doesn't have that alert where it pops up. Um, yeah probably don't have a Mostly. review process either i mean that's kind of software based on omnifocus yeah, yeah the, you can um, add check go ahead uh, you can add check marks i have different there's a, a dark blue and a light blue check mark you can you can associate with keys so you can make something 
a waiting for check mark versus a to do check mark or uh or uh, I have a single highlight for the the one the one item that I am focusing on but yeah like it's it's not perfect by any stretch but it's what I can do yeah and and honestly if you wanted a simple kind of paper based digital gtd system OneNote's also available on iPad and Mac and everywhere else. There's, I mean, you could kind of cobble one together to use universally if you wanted. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and you're using OneNote for some other things as as well. OneNote has kind of been your solution for more than than just GTD. It's it's been your solution for um, things like uh, CRM and for. Uh, kind of a an Evernote type replacement. Talk about some of the other ways that you're using uh, OneNote for just beyond getting things done. Yeah, so one of the uh, one of the mi- uh, minor features that I love the most is the the screenshotting. I think it's Windows S, and it just takes everything and gives you a little cur- um, crosshair, so you can highlight items that you can instantly add to OneNote, and then copying pasting from websites into uh, into OneNote is really awesome. You can either paste the, uh, a link to it, or you can paste basically the, the website itself and it will add a little hyperlink to wherever you're coming from. And it's my Evernote replacement so far. And it's been for the, about the year and a half that I've been there. I've, my OneNote database of useful work knowledge has increased so much. Um, yeah. It- it's interesting because Evernote recently raised their prices. Katie wrote a great blog post on it. We should link in the um, in the show notes. And and you know Evernote is seems to me like at a crossroads in a lot of ways because they they got really like wide with the different services they're offering. Now they're getting more focused on the stuff they started out with, and they're starting to raise prices to you know kind of keep the lights on. I would assume, but. Now there's a lot of competition that they didn't have when they started out in the world. Um, you know, Apple Notes, a OneNote, and, uh, and there's other services as well that are, are doing a lot of the same things. So I think it's going to be tough for them. What do, what do you think, Katie? Are you are you still um, big into Evernote? Are you starting to transition? What's your... Uh... You know, we can talk about this a little bit later in the show if we in more depth if, if we have time, but... Uh, I, I think I'm watching the situation very closely. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find ways to back myself out of Evernote a little bit to be a little less depend, reliant on it um, and looking about ways that I can scale back my usage and kind of seeing where things go. Now, now, um, Ruben, one of the things you said was you're using OneNote for a customer relationship management replacement. Oh, yes, yes. So tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, so... There's a couple awesome keyboard shortcuts like a uh, shift, shift, command, D and F. D adds uh, just a date tag and F adds date and timestamp. So whenever I have to, whenever an, an event I have to remember for some period of time occurs, um, I'll just hit the key, uh, the shortcut for the date timestamp, add my notes for the event. And then if it gets too big, um, I'll just, create its own page that and I'll link and I'll create a high, uh, internal hyperlink to that page to my, um, to my, to my log. So if I have to reference what happened at any particular project, 
like say six months ago, I can look at that phone call. I can look at that, uh, my notes on the topic and then I can, if need be, I'll, I'll take out the, the daytime stuff and then email the relevant details to my, uh, to the people I'm talking to. Yeah. I have a similar workflow in Apple notes with every client or matter that I work on, on the legal side where I've just got the note, it's got basic information there, maybe depending on what the, what the transaction is, if it's like a, someone selling their company, it's then the names of the various parties involved. And then I keep, like I call it a communications log and I do a date, date stamps with a text expander and just fill it in over the year. I've been doing this for years, so I can go back and look at something I did 10 years ago and I've got a text file somewhere that has got the history of it. And I, one of the things I find it really useful for is um, sometimes I'll hear a name, like somebody gets, I work on a case and some, this other lawyer shows up. I'm like, man, I really recognize that name. And I'll just go search that database. And sure enough, I had a transaction I did with a person, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> and it always just creeps them out how I know all of this stuff. And they think I have this great memory and it's just this series of notes. I, I don't know if I'd call it a CRM or not, but it's definitely something that really is is useful and i think it could work in in any bill any industry do you do anything like that katie well i think a lot of it depends on what your needs are and how much information you need i mean i will typically keep text notes a kind of a running log of text notes you know just saved in files and folder formats that is obviously searchable with with spotlight and i'll try to keep notes you know kind of in the contacts field uh with just general information about somebody but no, I, I don't have to, I, I, I don't keep that kind of stuff in a general com log like you do in NBALT. Now, um, Ruben, one other thing you do is, and you just, you wrote me this, we talked about it briefly on the prep call, and I don't think I completely understood it at the time, but just the fact that you're doing this, I want to hear the details. You're adding tasks to OmniFocus through Excel on your PC. Yeah. Okay, so, so you got to explain that. Yeah, once in a while, there's a bunch of stuff I want to uh, I want to add to my personal OmniFocus from home or at work, and I I know if it needs to be flagged, I know which project folder it needs to go into, and I know what kind of notes I want to have in it. Um, before I had to just send all that through the uh, through the OmniFocus email. Yeah, the and, mail drop. Yeah, yeah, the mail drop, and it's it's works, but I have to like sort through it later. Um, since they created their new scheme, I think it was like two months ago, yeah. something like that. Um, I was able to just write the schema out on Excel, uh, write the schema out and populate it using Excel uh, concatenates, and then I'll I'll send that as a text file to uh, to a to a service that adds it to. It's a little convoluted. I need to find a better solution, but this is what it is right now. It adds it to my Dropbox, and from my Dropbox, I have a workflow of my phone that takes it and just populates OmniFocus um, and all the fields and everything. So it's going from Excel to text file on Dropbox. Yes. And once you've got a text file on Dropbox with the new on iOS, is this happening on iOS for you? It's happening on iOS. Exactly. On iOS, you've got this ability now. Uh, they've they've really, really done a great job with autom automation on iOS. But it's not that easy to understand how you do it. And uh, the good news is I have like, I think almost an hour of additional screencast content. I'm going to be releasing on this very shortly. But uh, but gang, if you're out there and you want to automate project uh, planning on, on OmniFocus, the game is all switched over to iOS. In fact, I just deleted all my uh, templates on the Mac that I was using for Mac-based templating 
because it's so much better on iOS now. You can even do things like, say, um, you can have a defer date triggering after an event. Like like one of the ones I do is when we publish the Mac Power users, I have one that waits a day and then reminds me to tweet it out. So, you know, I can just like a day after if someone missed it, I can put a tweet out about the new show. And you can do all sorts of really high-end and very, you know, picky things with it. So I, so that's how you're doing it. So you're doing it to the iOS. But when you told me Excel to OmniFocus, I'm like, okay, I need to hear the whole story. Now, Ruben, I know you probably um, don't have a dedicated site because you said you didn't want to be internet famous, but is this written up anywhere that if people wanted to get, before David releases his additional content on scripting, you know, people wanted to get started with, with doing something like this that they could use as a resource? Or do you have any suggestions for resources? Or Ooh, I don't have one yet. I've been thinking about creating one under okay. a pseudonym. All right. Well, if you do, let us know and we'll throw a link to it in the show notes. Okay. And uh, if you really feel hell bent on it, let me know. Send it to me. We'll put it up at the web Mac Power Users or Mac Sparky or somewhere so we can link it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, uh, the other thing that you, you're doing, and um, this is one that I thought was just really smart, is you're at an office where they're really locked down, you know, very security conscious location. And so one of the things that you did, because you want still want to use iOS and have the ability to kind of deal with your personal stuff, is you got a Bluetooth keyboard for your iPhone. Yeah, you know, it's a cheap $13 Bluetooth keyboard. I figured it doesn't work out. It's not that big of a deal. But yeah, it's so much better to just deal with minor stuff on a on my phone really quickly on the keyboard. And I don't I don't know what it is, but it just feels better and it's faster. I get stuff I just knock that out of the way and then go back to work. Yeah. So like if you have personal matter because you can't have it on your work computer, you can just whip out your little Bluetooth keyboard and take care of it on your phone. I, I I've also heard from Mac Powers who's listeners that solve these problems with an iPad at the office. You know, if they're at a lockdown office and they want to like manage their OmniFocus stuff, they have they have it on an iPad and they just kind of manage their tasks on that, which is kind of a similar variation of that. Mm-hmm. So what is the uh, what are the problems? What's the big problem that's still bugging you at a PC workplace when you you're this Mac and iOS guy that you still haven't solved? Ooh, I or is this. there one? No, there's lots. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, mostly the integration of my personal life I, I is not ideal. Like I have to keep this the separation with my iOS being personal and my my work being all this this random collusion, uh, cumbersome ball of junk. Um, OmniFocus, I think. It's, it's okay, but it, I wish I can just do, you know, the keyboard shortcuts to add this and get that. Um, yeah, I wish that text expander was everywhere except for this, the weird thing that I have to do. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of people feel the same way that, that you do and um, are, are trying, struggling to find their own workarounds. And it sounds like you found quite a few. So ho- hopefully some of our listeners will learn some of the things from what you've shared with us and that will inspire them to experiment and, and find their own ways around this. So Ruben, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And of course, if you do uh, write up some of these, these solutions and these workflows, uh, I hope that you'll let us know so that we can include links to them in future shows. Cool. Cool. Thanks guys. Thank you so much, Ruben. So I want to take a brief moment to talk about our sponsor, Igloo, the internet you'll actually like. So with Igloo, you don't have to be stuck at your desk to do your work. You can manage your task list from your desktop during a meeting, 
You can share status updates from your phone as you're leaving a client site. You can access the latest version of a file from your home in your pajamas, if that's what you want, or the sleep night shirt that David's going to talk about. Uh, Nobody's going to know. And everything is mobile, so why shouldn't your work be too? If you've ever looked at your corporate intranet and thought, my goodness, whoever designed this must truly hate me, well, those days are over. Igloo allows you to make the intranet look and feel like a place you actually want to be. It's amazingly configurable, and you can completely rebrand it to give it the look and feel of your team. Thanks to things like group spaces, rolled-based access permissions, an easy drag-and-drop widget editor, you can reorganize the whole platform so it fits exactly how your teams work. With our mobile lives, people are increasingly bringing outside applications into the companies, and sensitive documents are getting scattered across multiple platforms. That can cause a lot of problems if you're not careful, but not if you use Igloo. Igloo allows you to integrate services like Box, Google Drive, Dropbox into one big, easy-to-secure platform. So if you've heard the buzzwords like 256 encryption, single sign-on, active directory integrations... Don't worry about that because Igloo just takes care of it and you'll know how safe and secure Igloo is. With Igloo, you can share files with your coworkers. You can all collaborate them on together. You can keep track of who has read what with read receipts. And this can be a super powerful tool for making sure that your critical information has been seen, making sure it's keeping everyone in the loop, and you know what is happening with your team. It's time to break away from the internet that you hate. So go ahead and sign up for Igloo right now. You can try it for free for any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want. So if you've got a small group, you may never have to pay for Igloo. But we're hoping that you'll incorporate it with your bigger team and they can find the advantages too. So you can sign up over at igloosoftware.com slash macpowerusers. That's igloosoftware.com slash macpowerusers. So thanks so much to Igloo for their support of Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. All right, gang. Well, we've got uh, more to talk about. We've got a bunch of listener questions that have, have come in. And uh, we'll go ahead and start with a, a first one coming up from Mary, who has a question about iPad uh, screen recording. Uh, and Mary wants to know, she says, I've applied for a part-time teaching position, uh, teaching adults about the iPhone and iPad. And as part of the interview process, I have to give an intermediate iPad lesson to other job candidates. Could you please advise me of any iPad screen reporting apps that would allow me to record my touch gestures and also advise me of the best way to do this and show this on a large screen. I have a Mac and a third generation Apple TV. Yeah, the the trick here is the live part. You know, if you want to record and show gestures uh, on a recording, ScreenFlow is the way to go. That's what I do all my recording on. Um, and they have uh, graphics elements that allow you to insert gestures, but you have to do them manually. Um, but, you know, the trick for her to do it live is is this app called Reflector. Yeah, Reflector is one that I use quite a bit in my Mac users group. And it's a great, I mean, there are ways that you can screen share uh, using your Mac and um, and and using QuickTime if you didn't want to actually pay for one of these solutions. Um, but if you if you want to to have kind of an easier way to do this, I've ultimately paid for and always keep going back to Reflector. And um, Reflector, it's about fifteen bucks or so. It's it's made by a company that keeps it pretty regularly updated, and it's a good way to allow you to present whatever is on your iPhone or your iPad screen uh, to a group of people um, using screen sharing. I like it. But if you want to do a, a pre-recorded recording, I think ScreenFlow is probably the way to go. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, and maybe that's a good idea is to run Reflector, uh, run it through ScreenFlow. And so Reflector, I guess we didn't, you know, it, it can be wireless or wired. And you basically um, hook your Mac up to the projector and then you you play it through Reflector. But you could run a ScreenFlow recording of your entire screen while you were doing it. Uh, there'd be some tricky things to get your mic connected to the Mac. So it kind of depends on where you're at. So maybe you could kill two birds with one stone, but I don't know how efficient that would be. Uh, but, you know, either way, uh, between ScreenFlow, ScreenFlow and Reflector, you're good. For years, I did all my ScreenFlow recordings w- using Reflector to capture the iPad and the, the uh, iPhone. However, the most recent versions of ScreenFlow have a direct connect uh, version where you can plug a lightning cable into your Mac and then capture the screen automatically. Uh, it doesn't do as good of a job of like putting the, the little image of the iPad, you know, like the, the outside, the aluminum casing around it, to, but right. it makes the image bigger and it's sharper and it's more um, responsive. So I've decided that I'm just going to not have the little aluminum casing in the image, but I'd rather have the picture bigger and sharper for people watching it. But that's uh, that's the two apps that really get you a lot of the way down the road for this. Right. And then depending on how you're going to present it, I mean, a lot of that depends on, you know, what the format is that you're presenting in. David obviously has a a whole field guide related to uh, giving presentations. So I'd suggest that be something that you might want to take a look at. But I mean, is this something that they they want a a link to, in which case you might want to upload it to one of the various um, sharing services like YouTube or Vimeo? Is this something that you want to present to a group of people, in which case you'll probably want to know um, are they going to have a TV there for you to present on? Are they going to have a projector that you're going to plug into? Um, and, and just kind of figure out what the equipment that's going to be in the room and, and what your options are. Um, if you're plugging into a TV, then you certainly could use something like an Apple TV and AirPlay to that. You could also go with a direct connection via HDMI and their, their various adapters available both for uh, Mac and iOS with that. But I think it's important to know uh, what is the equipment that's going to be in the room so that you can make sure that you have the right connection? They may also have equipment for you to present on, and they may want you to present on their equipment, um, in which case you'll just need to know what format to bring your presentation in. Yep. Bob wrote in asking about converting emails to PDF. He said, uh, he said I should know the answer since I've been listening to your podcast for a few years, but I don't. I need to save PDF copies of email messages to a specific project folder on the server. Is Hazel what you need for this? Um, to convert it to PDF, move the PDF to the folder in a server, and then delete the original email file? You know, or does he need Automator or Apple Script? Uh, you know, what's the answer? Uh, I think it depends. I think it depends yeah. on are you archiving these emails after the fact? Like when a, when a file is closed, are you taking everything in a certain folder or with a certain keyword or from a certain sender and archiving them? Or are you doing these as you go along? You're having to to save them as PDF to a certain folder. And I think it's a perhaps a different tool de- depending on what you're going to do. Um, you know, one of the, the easiest options is that Apple Mail has a manual export to PDF option in Apple Mail. And yeah. you can do that with, with individual emails or with groups of emails. You can do that now. Yeah, um, and they've, they've added that to the menu item. Years ago, I wrote the, uh, the blog post about my little script, my keyboard script. If I hit Command P twice, it saves an email as a PDF. Well, yeah. that doesn't. You were doing that always, kind of through the print menu before. Exactly, but that you don't need that anymore because they've added a menu command. But you, that doesn't come with a built-in keyboard shortcut, so you need to add a keyboard shortcut. So that makes it really quick. If you're in an email message, I use Option Command P 
for the saving the email from the Apple Mail application. Um, there is an app called Email Archiver, which kind of solves the problem Kitty was talking about earlier. If you just want to take a pile of email out of a folder or some location and save them all as PDF, that would work as well. None of these would uh, solve Bob's problem of deleting the original email, um, which I'm not sure you need to. I would be tempted just to archive it so you don't lose it in case you ever need it again. Yeah, um, I think another solution to this could also potentially be Keyboard Maestro. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. And key- keyboard yeah. Maestro is a, a tool that you can gen up where, you know, pressing a particular, you know, command of, of keys um, could both export the, the email as a PDF and save it to a particular location for you. And you could configure all of that through Keyboard Maestro. And if you had a few specific folders that you were regularly saving to, if maybe you had a couple of files that were, you know, you were constantly working on, you could even set up a couple of different keyboard commands to say, you know, file it to this one, now file it to this one, now file it to this one. Um, yeah. I mean, Keyboard Maestro, I think it would take a little bit of trial and error, but this is definitely something you could do with Keyboard Maestro that's in that skill set. Yeah, and also in the built-in save to PDF function on the Mac, you can actually designate different workflows with Automator that you save in there. So you can have it say, if, if you're only saving them maybe five different folders, um, you could have a separate workflow for each one or each a separate Automator action and save it to that that script folder. So you could save very easily to the same location repeatedly. If you've got, you know, a lot of different locations and they change, then that's not going to work as well. And then the final thing on this, we talked about this on the iOS email show last month, and I have since um, published the workflow script I use on iOS, but I have a really clever workflow script on iOS that allows you to do the same thing on iOS. But you have to use a third-party mail client um, like Dispatch or AirMail. Apple Mail will not do it for you. Connor has a question that was spurred on by the Hazel show. He says, for the past several years, I've been keeping my important documents like bills, tax info, etc., inside a disk image that I put a password on. Um, and then Hazel, I open it and Hazel runs an automator workflow to mount the disk image. I put in the password and then the files get stored appropriately. The encrypted disk image is then stored in Dropbox and I have just one backup. All right. He said, I have one more backup. Sorry. However, in recent months, I've been reweighing the trade-offs of the systems and I'm curious as to how you are handling this. And I had a couple of thoughts when I was reading Connor's email and I guess I have reevaluated over the last couple of years what I consider to be a sensitive file. I mean, solutions like Dropbox and iCloud and these cloud storage solutions do have some level of base level of encryption built in. And you need to get comfortable with the various uh, cloud-based solutions and what you're storing in them and what their policies are, obviously, before you store anything in them. But I would tell you that I personally, I don't have a lot of sensitive information on my utility bill. Um, Obviously, if I'm talking about tax statements or something like that, that's a whole different ballpark. And I'm still storing those in a secure disk image. But I think there's there's this constant trade-off which Connor is running into between security and convenience. And if you're you're storing everything in a secure disk image and you're having to constantly mount it and dismount it and those types of things... Um, you're you're going to run into some inconvenience. And so obviously you have to do your own due diligence and figure out what works for your comfort level. But I've, I have limited, um, given the level of security uh, of some of the various cloud services and given um, my personal comfort level, 
some of the stuff that I'm putting in that secure disk image now, and I'm I'm limiting it to what I would really consider my most sensitive information. Yeah, the um, I think there's three to me. There's three tiers of security, and each one is less convenient than the prior. The first one is let's just store it on Dropbox or iCloud, and you know, assume that they have, they do have uh, encryption on there. Uh, Apple would or Dropbox would be able to see it. If someone hacked in your account, they'd be able to see it. But generally, you're safe. Um, then the second layer is exactly what Connor's talking about, where you create a sparse disk image, a you know, basically a um, a separate disk within a disk that's encrypted by you, for which you only know the password. And if someone could get into your Dropbox, your iCloud account, they could get that image, but they couldn't unwrap it because they don't have your password. And then to me, the third level of security is I'm just not putting this on the cloud. You know, I'm not going to store it in Dropbox or iCloud. And that's super inconvenient if I want to, lo- you know, re- reference it somewhere else. But like even like some of my sensitive tax stuff, I don't really find myself needing to see that on my iPad when I'm at Starbucks. So why should I go ahead and take the risk and put it there? So my, my answer to you, Connor, would be look at those three layers of security and, and you make appropriate decisions for you. Um, like Katie, a lot of the day-to-day kind of bill stuff that comes in, I don't worry about it. And I go ahead and store it on a Dropbox-based storage. Although I would recommend if you're going to do one of those, set up two-factor authentication. They all have it. Make sure you enable that. Yeah, I would say two-factor authentication really should be your default for Dropbox. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of security, uh, Kathy asks, how do you convince someone to use a password manager? Uh, Inevitably, I'll bring it up to certain people, usually guys who consider themselves to be tech savvy, and they claim that it's risky having everything accessible through a single password, that gaining access to that document gives someone the keys to the kingdom. I realize the master password is encrypted in every way, but I don't know how to explain this in such a way to satisfy the skeptics. Well, I guess what I would ask them is, how are they currently managing passwords? Because if they're managing passwords the way a lot of people do that don't have a password manager, they have two or three passwords they're using repeatedly, which is way more unsafe than than having something like one password. Right. Uh, or at some if, point, you have to remember. I mean, you're going to have to remember one to get into it. Yeah. Or if they're storing their all these, if they are using good password practices, but they're storing them in an unencrypted method, well, then who has the keys to the kingdom? Where are they being stored? They're being stored kind of without anybody needing any keys. Yeah. Uh, and that's a problem, too. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of the honeypot problem where, yes, I'm keeping all of this information in this one location. But, you know, we, we keep all of our money in a bank and we, we trust the banks to to protect it. So I think the first thing is you need to do your due diligence. And you need to make sure that you're comfortable with the companies who are, are storing your information and securing it. Um, obviously, David and I like one password, but we do that because we know the people who run it. Um, we've got comfortable with them and their systems. Um, I, I wouldn't buy ABC password manager app off the app store and throw all of my stuff in there. Um, so I think you need to be comfortable with the system that you're using. And I think you also need to understand how it works and understand how the level of encryption works, you know, and there are other password managers that are very reputable and legitimate beyond one password. Um, there are also a lot that are, are not that are kind of fly by night and those that I, I would be very cautious and, and very weary of. And keep in mind that if you are truly doing a good job of creating that good master password, and and there's some recommendations on how you can do that, um, that that is certainly one good level of protection. 
So even if they do get the lockbox that is that is your password manager, it's it's going to be very very difficult for them to open it. And then the other is if it's stored on a system like Dropbox or iCloud, they've also got to compromise your Dropbox or your iCloud password to get in there as well. Or if it's even not, if it's not synced but it's stored on your computer and your computer is stored with a secured with a password, they've got to get in there as well. Now, is it possible that you could be um, susceptible to a phishing attack or a hacking attack and accidentally give someone that password or someone could find out that password? Uh, you know, yeah, it is. But I mean, I mean all kinds of things could happen. Um, I guess but see, I would argue that you're, you're less likely to be caught in a phishing attack if you're using a password manager, because at no point is one password or insert name of password manager app here going to send you an email saying, oh, we need you to give us your master password for some reason. Whereas um, it's much easier to get trapped into getting an email that looks like it's from Bank of America asking you to log in. Right. Um, I think like anything, it's it, you just you have to be careful. And I, I think I would ask, what are you doing now and how is that really any better? Yeah, I, I would. Kathy, I would expose their their existing weakness because you either have a, a big, long list of passwords, which is the way you're supposed to do it. Um which has to be somewhere unless you have an amazing didactic memory Top or desk drawer, you know, or you are going to have two or three passwords used over and over again. And both of those systems are inferior to what you get with a good password manager. So, so just talk to them about it. But, um, it, it is a, it's a great discussion to have with friends though. I, um, honestly, a, a major holiday where the family goes to gets together almost doesn't go by that. Somebody's not asking me about security and password management. But that's just me because I am I'm weird and my family knows it. OK, uh, Nick wrote in about merging Apple IDs. Uh, this one made my heart break a little bit when I started reading it. <laughs> Any advice for managing two separate Apple IDs? I have an old Mac account and I've used since the iTools days, as well as a newer iCloud account I set up after the mobile me transition using an email address of my own domain. Do either of you have this issue? Tips or tricks for managing purchases and iCloud data spread out over two accounts? There's not a good way to deal with this problem. I wish there was. I have an idea. Okay. Um, I I actually have a, a suggestion for Nick, and there's there's not a great way for for handling this problem. Um, but I think you could use family sharing as a back end to this, and I'll be curious to see uh, what you think about this, David, because you have more experience with family sharing than I do. So. This is a theory that I have not implemented in practice, but if you have two separate Apple IDs or if you have families that you want to merge and you want to merge all of this stuff, what about um, setting up your two various Apple IDs and joining them together in a family share account? Not long term, but just temporarily, if you can get both out of those Apple IDs on a family share account. So now you have um, old Nick and new Nick on a, on a family sharing account. And, and let's say old Nick is the one that you want to get rid of for whatever reason. Uh, uh, you need to make sure they're using the same credit card on both accounts, but I can see where you're going. Well, I, I don't think it matters because you're not going to be purchasing things long term, but you just want to get them on temporarily for now. Uh, so old Nick and, you know, new Nick invites old Nick to join up for, for family sharing. But anyway, they, they get together on family sharing. Um, and now new Nick should, through family sharing, have the ability to access all of old Nick's purchases correct yes both his his um his app purchases 
as well as his music purchases and now his in his videos. Now, music shouldn't be that big of a deal because the DRM is gone now. So you should just be able to export those and and re-import yes. them. But still, if if new Nick can now access all of old Nick's purchases through family sharing, new Nick can now go in and re-download those purchases. He, he will have to go in and do it individually, but you can go in through iTunes. And I would recommend doing this on the Mac because it's going to be a little bit easier interface. But new Nick can now go in through iTunes and download those things that he wants. And he may find that there's some stuff that he, he may want to download everything. He may find that there's some stuff that he doesn't want anymore. But I think once new Nick downloads that stuff, new Nick now owns it. And then once he's got everything he wants, he can now get rid of old Nick. And I think even this is what I don't know. If he cancels the family sharing, is he going to lose access to? I, I think he does. Old Nick stuff. I, I don't think he ever takes possession of it because uh, we've been we use family sharing to great success in our family. But like the the movies that are purchased on the account, you know, for years we used one single account and we continue to use that as the primary account. But the movies we purchase on that, while the kids can transition them to their accounts to watch, I'm almost certain, but I have not tested this. Uh, once they say, you know, once we remove them from family sharing, let's say someday they move out into the great big wide world and we've disabled the family sharing. I don't think they will still have access to those movies that they downloaded from the account. I think that they're going to have a DRM problem. I am not sure that that's true. And that's probably okay. what we're going to need our listeners to write in with. Yeah, let us know if you've experienced this. And uh, if we don't hear from anybody, I'll, I'll run an experiment. But I'd, I'd love to hear you're if gonna somebody's kick, already You're going to kick one of your kids out? Yeah. Just, we're going to be know, like, I'm sorry. You're out. We voted and you're off the island. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, I don't want to do that with all the, if it's going to cause a bunch of trouble for their account, I don't want to get in the doghouse again. So if somebody's already figured this out, please let me know. But otherwise, next month I'll report back. But the uh, I suspect it's going to be still a bag of hurt. I, I wish that Apple could do like an amnesty day or something where you can just combine accounts and just get everything to work. But I don't even think the problem's Apple. I think it's all these contracts they'd entered with all the content providers over the years. I just don't think there's any way for them to easily allow you to move all the, the data between accounts. I, I think my solution might get Nick most of the way there. And I guess I would also have you look and evaluate it. What is on that old account that you really need? Um, if, if it would work, if it would work, it would actually solve a big problem for me too, because I've got a legacy account. You know, I've got the legacy iTunes account that goes back into the, like the nineties. And um, that's the one we used as a shared account forever. Then when iCloud became a thing, we all have our own individual iCloud accounts and so now for family sharing, the legacy account is kind of like the master account. That's the one from which we all, you know, drink. And um, we still continue to buy stuff on that account. If I could actually permanently move those items into the individual accounts, like I, I, I'd be very happy to say, you know, all of the Taylor Swift stuff, not that there's anything wrong with Taylor Swift, goes into my daughter's account. I don't need it in mine. And um, uh, so that would be great. but. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking forward to, you've raised a good question, Katie Floyd. I will look into it and hopefully one of the listeners has already. Yeah. And, and again, I would, I think this is a problem that largely solves itself with time because what is it you're trying to transition? If it's mainly music, I think that's mostly a solved problem now that the music is no longer DRM'd. Well, but, but the movie, we've bought a lot of but movies if over the if, years. If, and, and I think if it's apps, over time, the apps will solve a problem, will solve itself, because 
as apps are updated and, and, and old apps fall off and you have to buy new versions, that will solve itself with some time. Not completely, but over some t- period of time, the app problem will solve itself. It's, yeah. it's, it's mainly movies uh, that's going to that's gonna be a problem if you have a large movie collection. Yeah, but I, I buy expensive apps. I, mean, I just bought the new uh, Omni plan, the, the update for Omni plan for iOS. I, I forget how much I spent, but it was quite a bit of money. It's like, do I, I don't want to have to buy it again on my individual account. I, yeah, see, I think you made a mistake there. I think when you converted to family sharing, you should have started buying apps on your individual account, not with the family account. Anymore. Yeah, you know what? I need to dig in on this. So we'll report back, but this is an issue. And uh, I I don't think it's that easily solved, but if it is, I would be uh, very happy. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Save $10 on any plan at SaneBox.com slash MPU. One of the most popular subjects on the Mac Power Users is email, and that's because email is hard. We're getting all of this email thrown at us and expected to deal with it all while at the same time keeping all the other plates spinning in the air that we're expected to in our lives. SaneBox can give you a helping hand with dealing with your email. SaneBox is a service that looks at the email coming into your inbox. It looks at who it's from and what the subject line is and makes some intelligent decisions for you. It's like having your own personal assistant sort your email for you. Because it's a service, it works with all kinds of email programs and services, and you don't need to have a special application. Best of all, it works. It works so well, I use it every day. When I wake up in the morning, my inbox is not full, but has just the most important emails waiting for me. If I look in the same later folder, it's got stuff that's not quite as important and can wait a while. It also has things like the same black hole where I can subscribe with just one click and some excellent snooze features for deferring events until the next day or weekend or whenever you decide makes sense. Another feature I love about SaneBox is Sane Reminders. If I carbon copy or blind copy an email to one week at SaneBox.com and if the receiver doesn't reply, I'll get a reminder in one week to follow up. This allows me to track a whole bunch of items without making separate OmniFocus entries, and it's super useful. SaneBox is even more, though, than just filtering and sorting. They are looking at every element of email and trying to make it better for you. For example, you can set a domain as important, so anything coming from Apple.com gets a priority. Or just the opposite, you can say something from a domain is not a priority. You can also use SaneBox to automatically download attachments to Dropbox. I hear from listeners all the time asking how they can apply Hazel rules to their attachments, and this is the best way to sign up for a SaneBox account. It moves your attachment into Dropbox, and then Hazel can do its work. The amazing thing is 66% of Mac Power users listeners that try SaneBox end up subscribing, and there's a reason for that. It's a great service. They have various pricing plans starting as low as $4 per month. You can get a 14-day free trial and get $10 off any plan by going to SaneBox.com slash MPU. Once again, SaneBox.com slash MPU for $10 off an outstanding service. Thank you, SaneBox, for supporting the Mac Power users. Emily also has a question uh, involving merging iTunes accounts, and uh, let's see if we can unravel that one as well. Hi, David and Katie. This is Emily. I've been listening to you guys for a long time, and I finally found something I couldn't solve with your wonderful backlog. I have committed an apparent mortal sin, which is that I have two Apple IDs. When I went to college, I got a MacBook, first generation, 
and set up a personal Apple ID. Then when I started working, I was given a company-issued iPad that had to be tied to my work email and therefore got my second Apple ID. Due to a change in company policy, the company iPad is now my personal iPad, and I've recently acquired my first iPhone. Using family sharing, I've gotten my apps to sync back and forth, but the fact that there is no way to merge the Apple ID is causing me no end of problems with my notes. Both my iPad and my iPhone have both my accounts logged into them and have notes turned on, but they do not sync back and forth, so I was hoping you could help me with that. Thanks. I also wanted to tell, especially David, a little story about why Ahoy Telephone is permanently disabled on all of my devices. That is because the name Siri is the name of my cat. Long before Apple got a hold of that name, I decided that my next cat was going to be named Siri after Siri Tachi of the Star Wars Expanded Universe. It leads to a lot of funny moments when my mom and her iPhone come to visit. Thought you'd appreciate that. Bye. I love that so much. Did, I did not know that there was a Siri in the uh, Star Wars Expanded Universe. Yeah, you know, I I'd completely forgot about it. She was a Jedi Master, of course. Why not? That's a perfect name for a cat, Jedi Master. Why not? Um, I think we're going to have to put a link in Wikipedia. Uh, this may be the very first Wikipedia link in Mac Power Users. Well, you and go feel free to. Uh, I'm not I familiar fully with endorse Wiki, it. Wikipedia, so you feel free to add that. I have it bookmarked, Katie Floyd. I'm, I'm sure, not messing around. I'm sure you do. Um, <laughs> Emily, getting back to the show, adds a little credence to the fact that my using family sharing as a bridge may work. Now, she does say she's got her app syncing back and forth. I don't know whether she's still going back and forth between the two accounts. Um, but can can you help her at all with her notes issue, David, since you are yeah. the Jedi Master of Notes? I hate to give her the bad news, but she's going to have to manually move them from whatever account to whatever account you cannot sync them on the server. Uh, so what I would recommend, there's a, there's an app for it called notes export or something like that. I'll, I'll find the name and put it in the show notes. You can also manually pull them out. Actually, if you go in the Apple notes app in the most recent version, they have an export, uh, function in it and an import function. So there's two or three different ways to do it. Uh, but you're going to have to manually get your notes combined into one account. So, that that one is going to be to do something next time you're watching Star Wars on TV and you just want something to do in the background. Uh, you can manually move them. But uh, Emily, you're not going to be able to just push a button and have it happen, unfortunately. It's pretty close to pushing a button, I guess, as I say. If you just do uh, an export and then an import, you're going to get close. But you're going to have to deal, uh, still do some massaging of the data once you get it in. And then Sherry has an unfortunate story to tell. And David, we got to see if we can help her because I feel for her. Yeah. She says in episode 361, Locking Down Your Tech, she was ironically on her way to the airport to visit her parents who were in their 80s and was inspired. When she got to their house, she was in their computer room and asked how their computer was running. And to her horror, they said everything was fine. After they had this one problem with their bank and this pop up came on. And to help them solve the problem, da 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 da. Long story short, they ended up paying this company four hundred and ninety nine dollars for five years of tech support. She said the address is based in Indiana, but the page on their website says their service is out of India. Yeah. She believes they've been scammed. She ran malware bytes on the computer, but didn't catch anything. She says she's writing now because she is incensed. She wants to get her parents' money back. 
and wants to know what she can do to try to get her parents' money back, but also to make sure that her parents' computer is secure and there's not a lingering problem there. I think Sherry's parents did get scammed. I think there's almost no question of it. Yeah, there's unfortunately lots of lots of similar things like this going on where you'll you'll accidentally mistype something. There are a lot of these domain squatters that will will squat on domains that are common misspellings or you'll go to a you'll install a bad extension or you'll do something and it will pop up uh, a notification saying that there's a problem. Call this number. This number can help you. And this number is, quote unquote, tech support. Um, but tech support is going to charge you a, a hefty sum. And sometimes what they want, and I think John Syracuse said his mother fell victim to this, is uh, they may just want to charge your credit card. They may just want to get money. But sometimes what they want is access is not only that, but also access to your computer. So they can go fishing and see what other information that they can get from you and pull off of your computer. So I, I think it's kind of important to know um, you know, if your parents can help tell you what happened that day, did they just give them a credit card and click a button or did these people have access somehow to their computer? I would say until you know better, I think you have to assume the worst. I think you have to assume that their computer has been compromised and, and go from there. Um, and just because malware bytes didn't pick up a problem doesn't necessarily mean that a keylogger isn't installed or that a, um, a screen sharing program or something like that isn't installed. And so I would, I would do some searching. I would look in activity monitor. I would see if there are any processes are running, uh, that you, you may not notice or recognize. I would see if there's anything different in their login items folder. I would see if there's anything different in their applications folder. Those would be some of the obvious places to look. Um, I would go into their web browsers and I would look in, in the extensions and see if there's anything in there. Um, but I think, the, the, I mean, those are all preliminary things that I would do. But I think just to be safe, what I might do is I might back up their data and do a complete nuke and pave of their computer and then restore just the data only, you know, just their files and folders and then restore their applications from scratch. So yeah, you, I, you know. out of, I mean, I think Little Snitch would be another option to install Little Snitch and see if it's radioing out any, to any strange places. Yeah, Little but. Snitch is going to be a big um intrusion though for a couple in their 80s who aren't particularly tech savvy no i'm just talking about uh for for sherry if she's gonna spend some time on it just to see what's going on but at the end of the day like katie i would assume that your parents typed something in at some point that gave them access i think you just almost have to assume it and in that case nuke and pave is really the only way you're going to be certain that they're not continuing to get scammed now, uh, with respect to the money that they've paid, my guess is that it's an offshore company. You can call law enforcement, and in my experience, law enforcement says there's nothing they can do, which is sad, and I think the money's gone. But the other thing I would do is check out, if they pay the four ninety nine, that's probably through a credit card, I would uh, look very carefully at the statements of those credit cards to make sure there aren't a bunch of additional $10 charges or just small incidental charges that they may have missed that have been continuing to get charged. And I would be, uh, I, I would, if it was in a credit card and it was recent, I would uh, contest it with the credit card company if at all possible. Yeah, to um, see if there's time to pull some of that money back. And exactly. the credit card company may require a police report. Even if the police is not are not willing to do anything, the credit card company may want a police report to, to start the fraud investigation. It depends. And I would also ask to get a new credit card number 
because once you've used it with someone that does something like this, they've got your number in a database somewhere. And even if they haven't charged you yet, they may charge you at some point in the future. So all this is dreadful news for Sherry, but the, um, yeah. just be, you know, be I, careful out there and, you know, it's just terrible. Someone in their 80s gets a pop up. I mean, they're going to assume that it's legitimate. And, well, you know, the other thing is these people also now have your your parents phone number. Um, and so I would probably try to have a conversation with your parents. Number one about did you guys talk about anything else? Did they did you tell them any information? What what did you all talk about? Um, it would try to do it in a you know non-accusatory way, obviously, um, because these people could be ripe to call back again and try to get more information. Uh, I think you need to have a conversation with your parents and put them on alert uh, because I think they're ripe to get scammed again because their name is probably their name and phone number is probably in a database now. Um, so I think I would certainly prep them with the expectation that they're going to get another call. Yeah, I had a client that got a call from someone claiming to be the IRS saying we're we're going to come serve you with a subpoena because you owe us a bunch of money in taxes. But um, if you'll go ahead and pay this, you know, four thousand dollar fine right now over the phone, we'll cancel it. You know, and. It was, of course, it was a, it was fraud, you know. And this is the kind of thing her parents have to look forward to. Uh, quick, uh, true story. Quick tangent. It's kind of yeah. funny. Uh, my eighty nine year old grandmother, uh, she has uh, nine grandchildren. Got a call from a young man who uh, claimed to be her grandson, and she has several grandsons uh, who claimed that he was in jail. And grandma, please don't, please don't call. My dad, please don't tell him I've done this thing. I need, you know, money to get out, blah, blah, blah. And you know what my grandmother told him? She just, he needed to sit in jail and think about it and call his father. <laughs> so she, she, she believed that it was her grandson calling. Yeah. The only way that she didn't get, she believed him. The only reason she didn't get scammed is because she was led to sit there. She brought some common sense to the table. <laughs> in a different context yes yeah, it is tough so be careful out there uh, if you're listening and you have elder parents or are friends with people that are you think are susceptible for this for any reason um, this is a great warning and a great reminder to have a conversation with them about these types of problems because they happen you know my middle-aged sister is totally susceptible to this one of them because she's just not tech savvy and, um, but over the years, I, I think I've kind of woken her up to all the, the scary things out there and man, doesn't, don't you just hate the fact that these people, that there should be a special circle in hell for these people. I, I have so much distaste for this stuff. Yeah. How do you go to work every morning? Um, and, and say, this is my job is to scam people yeah, and their businesses. They do actually get up and go to work. I mean, that's yeah. how it works. I don't know. Okay, be All careful right. out there. Sorry, Definitely. Sherry's parents. And Sherry, you've got a little bit of a project ahead of you to get them sorted out. But I, I honestly think that uh, the whole, you got to give them the whole treatment. You got to deal with the credit card. You got to nuke and pay with the computer. You just got to assume that everything has been infected that has touched this transaction. All right. We got some feedback about our iOS photography show. Uh, and Jeff wrote in to talk to us a little bit about how you can make a dedicated shutter release cable. You know, we talked about how you can use uh, the volume up or down buttons to release your shutter. Well, guess what? Headphone jacks also have volume up and down buttons. And so you can make a dedicated shutter release cable from an old set of headphones. You simply cut off the headphones, uh, the earbud parts, and you have a nice shutter release without all the tangles that come with having the extra earbuds dangling around. And we include a link in the show notes 
with how you can make your own. So nice tip from Jeff there. Yeah, I've got one pair of headphones where the uh, the cord got on the door handle. You know, everybody's done it, right? Yeah. And completely yanked out one of the earbuds, but it was right at the joint where it splits into the two. So I'm like, okay, now I've got a use for that cable that's been sitting in a drawer. Um, we also got, um, some feedback on that point. I kept talking about how the volume up button, volume up button, blah, blah, blah. That's the way to, to, uh, trigger the shutter. And apparently you can do it with the volume down button too. They switched that at some point, but, uh, like a lemming, I had been trained to use the volume up. I'd never even tried the volume down button in the last few years. Jason, we talked about uh, waterproof bags and how you can get some fairly inexpensive ones if you're going to take your your iPhone just out to the beach or the water park or something, but don't want to get a, a really expensive waterproof case. Uh, Jason recommends the Aquapack waterproof bags. He says they're a great and fairly inexpensive way to take your iPhone to the beach or water park or even snorkeling and still have full use of it. He says, I've had one since the iPhone 4 and I've taken it 20 feet deep without any leaks. I bought my wife a similar bag from, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, Freik, F-R-E-I-Q, I don't know. Uh, they yeah. certify down to 100 feet um, that's cheaper and they work just as well. So I've included links to both of those in the show notes. Yeah, I'm going to get one before my next uh, trip to Hawaii. I think that looks like a great idea. And they aren't that expensive. Yeah, obviously, uh, with any waterproof case, test them before. I mean, it's one thing to use it like if you're going to be on a boat and you just have a few splashes. But if you're going to intentionally submerge your device, um make sure you test it because sometimes there are defects in these when you get them. So test yeah. them for waterproofness. A good, a good way to test it is put a, a cut off a piece of a um, paper towel. They're very absorbent and, um, and put it in and seal it up and, and stick in the water, leave it overnight, do whatever. And if there's any water in there, you're going to see it in the paper towel. Um, John wrote in and says he was listening to the show and wanted to suggest another flash by Nova. And they are available. It's called the Nova Flash at NovaPhotos.com. It's compact. It's adjustable in terms of brightness and color. And it's wireless and will fit in your pocket and will mount uh, easily on a tripod with an iPhone style adapter. So you may want to check that out. I think this is going on my Christmas list. This is a great idea. Because, you know, my whole idea with this is I want to make it pocketable, something I don't, I want to shoot pictures with my phone and not have to carry a bunch of gear. And this, this falls within the, uh, the, uh, that criteria. You better put some cargo pants on your Christmas list too. I have some, so I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Cause you got a lot of stuff you're putting in your pocket with your, your, well, uh, I also, I also often take day bags and stuff. Like if we just go to Disneyland, I have a little backpack I wear cause I put a bottle of water and stuff in there. But what I just didn't want was the big camera and all the weight that comes with that. Um, and then Alan wrote in about the iOS camera replacement and wanted to talk about the app 645 Pro MK3. Uh, Mark 3. Oh, Mark 3. Yeah. What's yeah. in a name? He says it's available in the App Store. We've put a link in the show notes. And it has a very informative website that he's linked. Um, and it what he likes most about it is its ability to uh, intercept the signal processing, all according to Apple's guidelines, before iOS applies its JPEG processing. So you can specify that it is supply a TIFF of a photo and or normal JPEG. It's, he said, it's tricky lighting situations, um, uh, ability to work on a TIFF rather than a JPEG, but it can be a lifesaver. Yeah. Oh, he said in Another, tricky lighting situations, yeah. the ability to have a TIFF rather than a JPEG can be a lifesaver. There you go. That makes more sense. I'm, 
And that's what makes uh, iPhone photography such a, a possibility. It's, you know, it, it is a lens system and it's got some positives and negatives, but it, it's a very powerful software driven system. So, you know, you're moving a lot of the work to the software as opposed to the lens system, which sounds odd, but you can get some great pictures with it. It's, uh, it's not that hard. We heard from a lot of people in response to that show, and there are a lot of folks out there who have become iPhone photographers that used to have big, fancy cameras. And I think that trend is only going to continue in the future as we hear about some of the um, the rumors about upcoming iPhones with dual lens systems and all sorts of fancy photography improvements. So I'm going to take a moment to talk about our next sponsor, and that is Gazelle. Gazelle is the online marketplace for buying and selling used gadgets. And there you can shop from a variety of certified pre-owned electronics or trade in one for cash and give life to a new device. You can visit gazelle.com. That's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com today. Uh, now, I have been using Gazelle for a long time. It is the trusted online marketplace for buying and selling your used electronics. You can trade in your old device for cash or buy a certified pre-owned one or, you know what, do both. For trade-in, simply visit gazelle.com, find your device, tell them what you got, what carrier it's on, how much storage space you have, and the condition of the device, and get an instant quote. If you like their quote, you can lock it in for 30 days. Shipment uh, Shipping is free and the payment is fast. And if you're looking to buy a certified pre-owned device, Gazelle has a variety of iPhones, iPads, Samsung Galaxy phones to choose from, and each device is fully inspected and backed by a 30-day return policy and sold without any carrier contract. This is great. So here's the deal. My grandmother recently had to replace her iPhone. She had an old hand-me-down iPhone 5 that actually used to be mine, and she was having some issues with it. The battery wasn't quite holding its charge. Um, we had to get her a new one. We were trying to decide what to do, but we didn't want to go buy one from the carrier because she was on a really great contract. She was only paying 15 bucks a month. If we bought one from the carrier, we could have gotten a free phone, but it would have come with a $50 a month contract. So we went on Gazelle. We actually upgraded her phone. We got her a better phone. It was pretty cheap. And we were able to trade back in her old iPhone S uh, five. It still had value and got cash back that we could put towards the purchase. Uh, it was amazing. Um, Gazelle offers financing. So if you provide some basic information, you can instantly get approved if you need to and pay over three, six or 12 months. You can even buy a warranty that covers things like water damage, cracked screens, hardware defects and more. Uh, they're great benefits of buying certified pre-owned devices. Their devices are in fair, excellent and good condition. I picked a good condition for my grandmother. A good condition shows some gentle signs of wear and tear, uh, but offers consumers great value on still great devices. I got to tell you, I had to really inspect this phone before I could find any little uh, nicks or scrapes. It certainly was a phone that she was thrilled with. Couldn't find anything wrong with it and probably a lot better than the phone that we traded back in. Devices are available from all the major carriers and you can find out more information Head over online to gazelle.com today, and please make sure you click the survey to let them know that you were sent by Mac Power users. Well, as you know, we touched that third rail again and talked about personal finance software in one of the last shows. Yeah, that that, that always does it. <laughs> it. Always brings comments everybody wants. The funny thing is every time we mention personal finance software, my guess is now this is going to be a thing on our show for like the next three months. Um, most of the email we get is from people saying, what do I use? The very few people write in and say, I love, you know, this particular app. But we had a, a couple interesting comments that we thought were worth sharing. 
Um, Kenley wrote in about Mint. Um, he says, you know, it's mostly a ledger tool, but it also incorporates budget and planning options. And since it was bought by Intuit a few years ago, he said he started using them about a year after they launched and he's always felt safe and secure using the tool. They have a read only access with all the financial services. And uh, that way he doesn't have to pay for anyone that gets software, but he can still see what's going on in his bank accounts. Um, I've used Mint too. Um, sometimes I hear from folks that are uh, very much against it because of the cloud-based nature, but, um, uh, you know, I guess you got to make your choices. And are you still happy with Mint? I mean, are you using it? Is that your only solution? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I have, it's been the default, so I have not really gone crazy with finding other solutions. And maybe when we get serious about doing another finance show, maybe at some point in the distant future, I'll, I'll download a bunch of apps and see if I like something better. But uh, the thing I like about Mint is it, it does get generally everything right. It, the reporting it gives me is good. Um, I like the graphs that it creates so I can see what our spending trends are. Uh, I'm about to, on the business side of my life, um, get a, um, uh, a QuickBooks online account because that's what my accountant really wants us to use. So I'm going to be going even deeper into the Intu Intuit pool. And um, uh, so I guess that's uh, another reason to stick with Mint is I've kind of got all my eggs in one basket. Uh, Mark wrote in and wanted to talk about GNU Cash. He said GNU Cash is a free GPL software. Uh, when I last looked at it 20 to 30 years ago, it was pretty clunky. He said the Mac version was uh, Linux-like, um, not beautiful, but does the job more or less quick and ever did for me. He said you can choose to store data on a readable XML files, which is his choice, or in an SQL database. And the documentation says most people will be better off with XML. He says, although the process is not trivial, GNU Cache did a plausible job of importing his Quicken data with some assistance. Um, it's obviously not a solution for everybody, and it's a little more techy than most, but it might be an option for you if you want to take a look at it. So we'll put a link in the show notes. GNUcache.org. There's a great couple Jungle Cruise jokes I want to tell you right now, but I'm not going to, out of respect for Katie Floyd. I appreciate that. Okay, George wrote in about Banktivity for iPad. Uh, in the most recent live show, I mentioned, David mentioned that he didn't know if there was a Banktivity app for the iPad. There is. I had been using Banktivity, formerly iBank, on the Mac for several years, and I was very happy with it when last November my wife and I traveled to Australia for three weeks and I didn't feel like taking my MacBook Pro. I took my original iPad Air, uploaded the Banktivity app, set up syncing with my Mac, and it took off and worked great. So there you go. I mean, that's a locally developed uh, app for the Mac and iOS. That if you don't want to use, um, if you don't want to use Quicken, that's a good option. And we got quite a bit of feedback on our family tech support show. Daniel had some thoughts about antivirus for Mac. He said regarding antivirus software, he says, I also went for many years without running it on my Mac and haven't had a problem. And it's a personal choice, as you said. However, if I was helping to set up a Mac for a friend, I probably would invite them to install anti-malware software and antivirus software for two reasons. One, even if it's unlikely, there's a chance of being infected by malware. So it's better to be the friend who protected them than didn't. And he says it's also the similar reason why it's good to recommend a backup. He said, two, it's to help reduce the chance that you'll unwittingly infect a friend or a family member's machine by sending an email or sharing a file that contains malware. And he says, we had a guest on a recent episode who recommended Sophos. He said he's been using it for years and it seems to work well. Um, 
And he says, I agree with the point you made that anti-malware software and antivirus software can slow systems down. However, in his experience, Sophos has not been that bad. It seems to have very little impact performance, and he's running an older Core 2 Duo Mac Mini with 8 gigabytes of RAM and an SSD. So that might be someone something to look at, and I've put a link in the show notes to Sophos if you're so inclined. Yeah, I some of the more traditional antivirus software out there um, feels like installing a virus on your Mac when you try to get it off. Um I have not heard that about Sophos. Uh, the friends and guests that we've had that use Sophos are all fans of it, which is promising. If I was going to install uh, antivirus software, I would be looking very seriously at using Sophos as my uh, weapon of choice. Okay, Brian wrote in about other things we might have mentioned, and uh, he said uh, a, a password manager for iOS. I'm surprised we missed that one, but um, I guess we did. And a VPN for iOS and a Mac laptop. We did talk about that, I thought, but maybe I'm forgetting things. And two-factor authentication or authorization for the most important services. And that is something we did not talk about. We should have. When you're setting something up for somebody, either on the Mac or iOS, I think uh, two-factor is kind of a new thing. And people should know about it. And they should be eager to install it. Right. Well, you know, one is we can only cover so much when we do these types of shows. And I think we had just covered all of these solutions in our previous locking down your tech and security episode. So there's there's yeah. going to be some overlap there. But, yeah, I mean, I think when you're when you're setting a family member up uh, with technology, uh, you do have to kind of weigh, you know, how much is going to be overkill and, and how much are they they ready for? I mean, if you start loading everything on them at once. Uh, you may not make much progress and you may kind of inadvertently do more harm than good because they're not ready for any of it. Uh, I certainly absolutely agree that a password manager is a good thing, especially a password manager for iOS. I absolutely agree that a VPN service is a good thing and two-factor authentication is a good thing. But, you know, sometimes when you're setting up a less tech-savvy family member, you do have to to, to kind of pick some of your battles. Yeah. And on family tech support, Patrick uh, wrote in in praise of Discourier. And we we talked about it on the show Discourier scratches a very unique itch. When you have a, a disk drive, there's a directory file. And you know, that's basically the map to the disk drive. And I think I talked about this a bit on that show. And Discourier, sometimes that becomes corrupted. So the data is on your drive. The blocks of data are there, but the map points to the wrong location. So when your Mac goes to find it, it can't find the data it wants. So Discourier will analyze the data and then create a new map based on its analysis. It's a very special tool, but if you have a corrupt index, obviously uh, it saves your bacon and it's a, it's a great app. It's got that one purpose. I have not purchased it now for several years because I've not needed it. But if I had an index corruption problem, I would immediately spend, I think it's the hundred bucks that you need to get it because it saves your data. So Patrick had a war story. He says his mother-in-law's old Drobo wouldn't mount and all of her family photos and music and CDs were on it. And they were looking into drive savers, which is going to cost them $7,800 to retrieve the data. Uh, the, the, the problem, by the way, was caused by a damaged firewire to Thunderbolt adapter, which was causing unexpected disconnects and corrupting the index. So he got Disc Warrior, ran it on the Drobo, and recovered all of the data, which uh, made him a hero. I mean, when you do that for your mother-in-law, I mean, you should at least get some cookies or something, right? Something. And I, I think the, the moral, two things. Number one, Disc Warrior can be a great tool to have in your tool bed if you're providing tech support. But the other moral of the story is, uh, although we love Drobo and I have Drobos, um, any 
type of system can also become corrupted. I mean, it is still a single point of failure. Um, and so this is why it's important to have backups of this type of data. I mean, yes, network attached storage and RAID drives do protect you from an individual hardware failure, but they can become corrupted. They can also fail. So I think this story also stresses the importance of having backups of all your data, even if you think that they're already on a redundant system. Yeah. Putting it on a NAS does not make it bulletproof. Like what if someone steals the NAS? I mean, go to the most basic level. Someone breaks in your house and they take the Drobo along with the iMac. You, you need to have that stuff backed up separately. Um, I don't do it every day. And we talked about it on that recent backup show we did, but I do have a system in place that backs up all of the data off the Drobo. Um, you should too. And if you don't, uh, Put, put that in place right away because you don't want to you don't want to need disk warrior that's you know that's what you do when things are really dire uh, and hopefully the reason i haven't bought disk warrior in years is because i've got so many backups now that if i have that kind of problem i just restore from a backup and i don't worry about the index um per daniel wrote in with a um uh, a workflow a tip for us and um he talks about he's got a bunch of notes in Envy Alt that have become obsolete, but he still wants to keep them for further reference. And his solution was to put a hashtag archive in there somewhere inside the note. And he uses Hazel to scan the notes folder and put notes with that tag into a folder archive inside the notes folder. And Envy Alt will detect the note is not available and ask him to delete or restore it. And notes inside that folder without the archive tag will be moved back inside the notes folder for Hazel. Um, and it's just kind of a simple Hazel workflow that he uses to help him cl clear out his NVALT directory from his archive notes. And he's put a, he's a, I've asked him if he had any more information about how he did this. And he included a link uh, to back to his website that, uh, that we can reference back to. So um, if you're interested in doing something like this or with more power of how Hazel can be used, uh, we had a lot of people write in with good ideas about how they're using Hazel since that show. Yeah, that was a good one. So we'll put this link in the show notes and um, you can automate your archive. Uh, but going back to the uh, family tech support, there was one we missed here, Sorry, uh, which I, which I thought Skipping was a good ahead. one. Yeah. You got a little bit ahead, got excited. I did get excited. Yeah. But Jim wrote in um, keeping a list of your family's hardware great idea. He says his tip is to keep a list of the hardware owned by the family members and friends who you consider supporting. If Aunt Sally calls and needs a new battery for her laptop, just go to the list and see if it's a unibody with no battery door and send her to the Apple store instead of the awkward moment when you're standing in front of her and realize you have committed to taking apart her computer. Good tip. <laughs> Good one. Good tip. For but sure. I, I think just having like a list of um, hardware and, and honestly, I don't know if I said this on that show or not. I even keep some of their passwords because, you know, I've got a secure system when password where I put secure notes in, you know, keeping kind of the data I need to take care of them is a, uh, is a good way to go. Uh, Ruben, not the same Ruben we had on earlier today, uh, wrote in with some thoughts on backup following up on our backup show that he wanted to share. Hey, MPU, this is Ruben Cardigan. You guys did mention this, but I think it deserves to be stated directly that backups are an answer to a list of what if scenarios. What if your drive fails? What if someone breaks into your home and steals your valuables? What if a fire destroys your home? What if an earthquake, flood, or hurricane destroys everything in your area? What if you delete and overwrite the good copy of a file? What if the RAID array fails? What if someone 
a tax into your account? What if somehow, some way, you lose all your physical devices? You, dear listener, will have to make the conscious decision as to which of these you will be protected from and which of these you will not be protected from. And as David and Katie so kindly mentioned, your options in the fight are backups, clones, shelf backups, raid arrays, time machines, cloud storages, and drobos. There's probably something else I'm forgetting, but those are the main ones. I haven't heard a more exhaustive list and anything listed than on MPU. Hope you guys think of all the ways this can go wrong and how the universe can turn on you and make a recovery plan for it. I love the show, guys. Well, that's kind of so Ruben made a double appearance today on the show. Yeah, I guess it was the same Ruben. <laughs> the, um, I, you know, we keep saying it over and over again, but I know there are people listening to the show right now that have data that's not backed up at least a couple times. And please just go do it. And, and also, you know, spread the word. I mean, the two things that you can really do to help out your um, the people in your world as a geek is make sure they have a good password system and make sure they have backups of their data. And if you can do those two things, you they are going to love you forever. So so just keep it in mind. Hard drives are not that expensive. OK. Um, LaShawn wrote in with a correction for you. Apparently yeah. you got something wrong about I, air I mail. got schooled. Yeah, I did. You know, and I, I knew that I don't you know. I was talking about too many apps that day and got my brain um, misfiring. But uh, uh, Airmail does allow you to swipe within the signature area to change signatures if you have multiple signatures for an account. Um, uh, LaShawn has been doing that with Airmail for quite some time, and it's been available since launch. Uh, I, I tested that at one point and knew it, but then I only have one signature per account, so I wasn't seeing it. Uh, whereas with, um, I believe it was with Spark, I was able to... I had a master list of signatures that was swiping through. So I got that one wrong. Um, and, and Greg wrote in with some ideas for using dispatch keyboard shortcuts. Hi, David and Katie. This is Greg. I love the show. And I had a follow-up comment to make about uh, dispatch for uh, iOS after your recent iOS email episode. Um, one thing that they implemented in their iPad app, I don't know, it must have been six or seven months ago that I find absolutely indispensable and uh, kind of in, kind of uh, ingenious in the way that they've done this that I haven't seen anybody else do and that they don't make a big deal about um, is what they call their hotkey browser. So if you're in dispatch going through your email, type option spacebar on the external keyboard. And what that does is it brings up a little display that looks like Alfred's interface on the Mac. And then you can start typing in, in things here. And this is a shortcut to their list of built-in um, actions that gets you into other apps or other things. So if you type in PDF, you'll get export PDF show up. If you type in things or OmniFocus or Fantastical, you'll get those integrations showing up too. Same thing with Evernote. And then you can either arrow down and then hit return to execute the action that you want to execute, or you can you know, hit command one, two, three, depending on the order there. And they have them listed on there. Again, very much like Alfred uh, for the Mac. And that means uh, using this, I can actually process my email on the iPad almost entirely from the keyboard, which I find just absolutely, uh, uh, <laughs> in, like I said, indispensable. It makes it makes dispatch so much easier to use in some ways because I'm not constantly reaching up to touch the screen and, and move things around, and it's just it's really really nice. And as a side note to this, if you um, need to get to an action that's on the share sheet instead of in this built-in set of actions that they have. If you're on a message in dispatch, you can hit shift command S 
to bring up the share sheet. And you will have to tap the screen from there, obviously, but at least you can get started into that. Um, there's still a, a keyboard focused way to get into that there. So I wanted to throw that on the table there as something that, um, as a feature of Dispatch that I find really good. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I continue to use that as my pretty much my only email client on iOS is by far the, the one that I use um, as my de- it's easily my default client on iOS as good as the others are. So again, thanks for the, uh, you know, the show really enjoyed that last show. Enjoy the show overall. Uh, keep up the good work guys. Yeah. And the other thing dispatch does, thanks Greg for that. Uh, dispatch honors basically Apple mail keyboard shortcuts. So if you're using Apple mail on your Mac and you go to dispatch on iOS, it's very consistent. You know, command R is reply. Whereas with some of the others, they use like Google shortcuts where you just type the R key, um, shift command D to send, you know, with some of the other clients, it's like command enter or something else. So I, uh, I do really like the fact that it has the same keyboard shortcuts because I'm using Apple mail on my Mac and dispatch quite often on iOS. So it's a nice consistency there. We got yeah. a lot of good email about that, that show. So uh, I'm glad everybody liked it. I finally did get up that, uh, that post about the saved a PDF and got tons of great feedback on that as well. I actually made a screencast about it because it was kind of complicated um, so go ahead and watch that over at maxmarkey.com if you're interested in saving PDFs out of your emails on iOS. Yeah. Speaking of iOS, we had a couple of people write in with accessories for the Apple Pencil because we talked right, uh, quite a bit about the Apple Pencil. Uh, Gretchen wrote in with an Apple Pencil holder through Quiver Global uh, that she uses holders for pens for notebooks, and she bought the holder for the pencil and like it. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Bruce also likes the Pencil Cozy which is available on Amazon. One part keeps the top of the Apple Pencil and the other part keeps the charger with the cable so that you can use the lightning charger most of the time. He also says that he likes uh, the black pen loop, which is available on Amazon, and it has an adhesive pad and elastic loop that works great with the pencil. So there are a couple of options for Apple Pencil people. We also got some feedback, and I don't have it in the outline here, but one listener wrote back in saying, that they like to use the USB connector as the cap on their pencil. So there's a, a double female connector that comes with the pencil. So you can plug it into any cable. You know, it, it's a strange design in the sense that the the cable connection on the pencil is a male connector. And the advantage of that is you can charge it on your iPad itself anytime you want. But it, it's odd because if you've got another male connector, how do you charge them? So it comes with this funny little connector. It's double female sided. And a lot of people take the cap off the pencil and just leave that that connector on as essentially the cap of their pencil. And um, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do. I feel like I'm afraid it's going to break the pencil because it's longer and it's connected to that um, it's connected to that male uh, lightning connector popping out the top of the pencil. So if if it got bent or something, it could cause a lot of trouble with my hundred dollar pencil. So I don't keep it on there. The the cap that comes on will just kind of come off if it gets caught on something. Whereas this thing will will actually bend the connector. I don't know if anybody's had that experience or not, but it's it's another way to deal with the problem. But I I'm not a fan of the idea. All right. And wrapping up our listener feedback portion today, we got a um a tip from Taz that I think is going to make me buy the latest version of Dragon Dictate and use that is just too cool, David. And um, I'll, I'll be curious to see what you think about this. Hi, Katie and David. I'm a longtime fan of the show and wanted to share one of my favorite workflows. 
Sometimes, while I'm away from my computer, I need to dictate and transcribe long passages of text on my iPhone. As you've pointed out many times on the show, the iPhone's built-in dictation feature can suddenly stop after around 30 seconds, so that's never been a good solution for me. I considered following David's lead and subscribing to Dragon Anywhere, but I didn't feel the price was worth it for me, at least not yet anyway. So I came up with a rather absurd but free solution that takes advantage of all the software and hardware I already own. And here's how it works. On my iPhone, I record my voice into a terrific dictation app called Dictate and Connect. It's by Jatomi, if I'm pronouncing that right, and costs around 17 bucks. There are certainly less expensive voice recording options out there for the iPhone, but I just love this app for its professional features. After recording my dictation, I tap one button, and the app uploads that new audio file to a specific Dropbox folder. At home, I've already got a Mac Mini server that runs Hazel. So as soon as the audio file arrives in Dropbox, Hazel sees it and triggers a custom macro in Keyboard Maestro. The macro launches Dragon Dictate and then tells it to load and transcribe the audio file. The transcription appears in the app's built-in notepad. Once Dragon Dictate is done transcribing, the macro then copies all the new text, closes the notepad, activates my email client, creates a new message addressed to myself, and pastes in all that new text into the body of the email, and then it fires off the email. So once it's all done, I receive all the transcribed text as an email on my iPhone. It took a lot of trial and error to get it all set up, but I finally got it working, and it's been transcribing my long-winded ramblings for well over a year now without any hiccups. So that's it. If any of your listeners want to find me, I can be found at handheldhollywood.com or tazgoldstein.com. Thanks so much for all the terrific shows. Keep up the fantastic work, and I'm already looking forward to episode 400. Bye. I don't know why, but I listen to Taz's voice, and I think that is one handsome devil. Well, Taz has got quite the voice for dictation. Doesn't he? It's a great workflow, too. So he's got uh, the home Mac doing the dragon dictate. And then the, the, the clever part I thought was emailing it back to yourself. So you get the file back right there. Smart. It's very awesome. And it's oh. kind of using a lot of the tools we've talked about over the years. One question I would have is, is, you know, how accurate is it? I use uh, dictation, dragon dictation, both on my Mac and on iOS. And I do find that it makes little errors once in a while. So you're going to be just getting back. I guess you just have to go back and manually correct whatever errors it finds. Um, whereas if you do it with the app on your device, you're going to see it as it transcribes and be able to make corrections. But, um, that makes sense. Are you going to try it? I, I think I am. I think I am. Okay. We'll report yeah. back. I'm curious to see what you think. I will. So, all right, David, um, before we go today, I want to talk about some tech that we're both playing with and that's yeah. our, our Eros. We've had a lot of people, uh, buy some Eros because we've mentioned them on the show and then, um, ask us. They know we've gotten some Eros and ask us about those. So I want to talk about that uh, in just a minute. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the Fujitsu ScanSnap line of scanners. Learn more at budurl.me slash SSMPU. Like it or not, paper is still a big part of our lives. We've got this paper coming in every day and we need a simple way to save it to our Macs. For this problem, Fujitsu has got you covered. For years now, they've been sponsoring the Mac Power users with their outstanding Fujitsu ScanSnap line of scanners. I was a customer long before they sponsored the show, and I still love and use their products every day. What makes the Fujitsu ScanSnap line really shine is the combination of outstanding hardware and software built around the Mac to solve your scanning problems. 
The gang at Fujitsu is not resting on their laurels, however. They're always adding new features. Fujitsu has just announced an amazing new addition to the ScanSnap line. It's called ScanSnap Cloud. Up until now, you've always needed to attach your ScanSnap to a device. You could attach it to your Mac or to your iOS device via Bluetooth, but you had to connect it to something. Well, not anymore. Now with ScanSnap Cloud, you can scan your documents directly to the cloud service that Fujitsu runs. I've been doing it for a couple months now, and I really love this. I set up my ScanSnap IX500 in my laundry room. I put it right next to the trash can and the recycle bin. So when the mail comes in now, I just scan it right there. I can throw away things or recycle things as appropriate, and the ScanSnap Cloud saves it to the cloud and then sorts it for me. ScanSnap Cloud can intelligently sort documents, receipts, business cards, and photos, and then it saves them to whatever cloud service you tell it to. I'm doing most of mine to Dropbox at this point. ScanSnap Cloud even does some basic OCR and tries to name the file appropriately for you. So now once I scan my documents, they end up in my action folder. I don't need to keep the scanner on my desk next to my computer anymore. And scanning the mail happens even faster because it's right next to the trash can. As I take it in, I scan it and I deal with it. The ScanSnap Cloud is a great new service from Fujitsu and just another reason why you should have a ScanSnap. Fujitsu combines outstanding hardware with outstanding software and services. Learn more at budurl slash SSMPU, that stands for ScanSnap Mac Power Users. And thanks Fujitsu for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. All right, David. So we talked about the Eros, which are these new routers. Can we just call them routers? They're, they're kind of this new way of, I guess they're routers at their heart, wireless routers. It's a, like mesh networking is the fancy term they use, I think. Right. And we first heard about these on an episode about a month or so ago with Clayton Morris, where he was raving about them. And the the problem is basically that that wireless, despite all of its advances over the years, is still not good. You know, we were talking about, we have had multiple Mac Power user shows about networking. Because if it was just as simple as going to the store and buying a router and plugging it in, we wouldn't have to do hours and hours and hours of content on networking. But inevitably, there's more to it. Inevitably, you've got a dead spot or you've got another area that you need networking to or you've got a special circumstance. And so we talk about things like power line or we talk about things like how to add another router to your network. And we talk about things about wireless extenders and and adding all of these other devices and, and adding routers. And and it's it's just really a mess and there's not a great solution. And you were talking about a particular problem that you were having where you weren't getting coverage in your house. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's just so many problems with this. The uh, I've always been a big fan. The, the Eero thing was a tough sell for me because I've always felt like Apple's airports were about as good as it gets in terms of making it easy to use and manage. But we have an issue in our house where we have um, the way our house is designed or laid out or whatever. The, the part of the house where my daughter's rooms are gets very weak coverage. And they're teenagers, so they don't pay particular attention to whenever they're on Wi-Fi or on LTE. And suddenly, my bandwidth bills for LTE were starting to get hit with overcharges. And I couldn't figure out what was going on until I realized, oh, they are watching like YouTube stuff 
over LTE in their bedrooms without even realizing it, or maybe realizing it and not telling dad. <laughs> I don't know. So I, the first way I tried to solve the problem was I bought a, um, an airport extreme, like a, an extent, I tried to get an extender, you know, so I put a second airport extreme upstairs in the general vicinity of their rooms that would grab whatever wireless signal got from the airport time capsule downstairs and, you know, tried to broad, rebroadcast it for them. But you know what? It still isn't consistent and we're still having the same problem where they're not getting consistent Wi-Fi. So that was the problem I was dealing with. So what the Eros are, and you can buy them individually, but it probably makes the most sense to buy them in in packs of three and Amazon sells a three pack. And for full disclosure, Eero heard heard us talk about them on the show and they sent David and I both complimentary uh, the Eero three pack. And I will tell you that I was a little skeptical because I thought that I was okay. I wasn't having trouble. I mean, I have a decent sized house. It's about, I don't know, 13, 1400 square feet. And I was pretty lucky that my airport express was, or my airport extreme was pretty centrally located. So I didn't have a problem. I could get, I could get Wi-Fi in, in all of my various areas of the house. But so I, I didn't really think that this was going to be a thing for me. It might be great for other people, but I went ahead and plugged them in and I did not realize the problems that I was having until I wasn't having them anymore. And um, I put the main Eero in my living room that just kind of replaced my airport extreme. And then because I'm very fortunate, my house is wired. It doesn't have to be. I went ahead and plugged in through the wired network other and, and that goes back to a central router that everything in my house is plugged into. I'm, I'm, I have a, my house was wired when it was built. And then I plugged the other Eros. I plugged one into uh, my home office, which is on one end of the house. And I plugged the other one into my bedroom, which is on the other end of the house. So I've got coverage kind of on both extremes of my house and in my bedroom. And, and everything is fine. It worked great. And the app was cute and set up was simple and, and all of those things. But one of the things that I realized is that I was having a lot less trouble with all of my Internet of Things devices. Um, I was having trouble before with some of my Wemo switches. I was having trouble with some of my Hue lights. And, and, and I initially blamed some of that trouble, and I think some of it was true, on, you know, my if this then that rule is not firing or on the actual devices itself. But now that I go back and look at it, I realize that those devices that I was having trouble with were kind of on the edges of my house. They were in my garage or they were on a side wall. And those have all been working flawlessly since I put in the Eros. And now I'm wondering if maybe the trouble with those devices was just because they weren't getting good or consistent signal. Yeah, it, it really, uh, I had a great experience too with it. We, we hooked them up and I actually purchased two additional ones. Um, I've got a um, kind of like a media cabinet where the Xbox and the Apple TV and everything is. And it's, it's kind of in a weird location, the house. And I thought, you know, why don't I just go nuts? So I put a separate one in there and I attached a little switch to it. So I've got basically the Eero has ethernet out or, or in, but I'm using it out in this case. So I've got an Eero set up in that cabinet with an ethernet out to it, to a little switch that's got, that's connected to the various media devices. So they've got kind of hardwired ethernet, although it's, you know, grabbing it through the air. And, um, and I also put one in my daughter's room. I just said, screw it. You know, I'm going to put one in the room and now they've got super great internet in their room. And the, the, the big advantage for me is I have my backyard. I work in my backyard quite often. I've got a nice little setup back there. 
and it's always got weak internet because it's you know behind the house and now it's like it's just rock solid so it, it really does work i didn't you know i didn't know what to think about it but uh i i, I found my, well, not only did i buy a couple more i repurposed my my um time capsule they with some settings you can turn the radio off in your time capsule so now it's attached to my Eero. i still have time capsule doing the time capsule thing but it's no longer my my router so uh, you, I have, I'm fortunate because I have wired, I have my Eros wired throughout my house. And we actually had a call last week with Nick Weaver, who was the uh, co-founder and CEO of Eero. And he said, well, that's great. You certainly can wire them. That doesn't hurt anything. But he informed me that, you know, your Eros may not actually be using the wired because they're designed to to smartly, intelligently reconfigure themselves and use the path of, of least resistance. So if that's your wired network, great. But if not, if that's your wireless network, it's going to use that. You do not have your house wired. No. So you have got one wired that's plugged into like your your modem, but the rest are just creating their own wireless mesh network. Yeah, it's and it's it's great. I mean, I don't know all the the details of it. As I understand, there's there's basically two radios in them. One of them's carrying the signal. The other one is be, being the internet. And that's a very big simplification because as we understand the technology, the, the things are smart enough to know when they do one thing versus the other. But um, the, the real benefit of it for us is that we have better internet than we've ever had in the house. It's, um, it's pretty expensive to buy one. If you're going to get a, a three pack, it's, it's 500 bucks. But that's about what I spent buying the uh, time capsule plus the extra router. And it's way, way better coverage than what I had with the same money I had spent at the Apple store. So I, uh, I'm a fan. I'm keeping it. Yeah. I'm a fan too. In fact, I think I'm going to strongly recommend my parents have a much larger house than I do and they have a split floor plan and we've cobbled together a solution with an airport extreme and a couple of airport express base stations, but it's not a great solution. And I'm going to recommend that they just pull this out and that we put a couple of three pack of euros in there. And yeah. just solve their problem because, I mean, when you think about what you spend to fix this problem, um, whether it's buying multiple base stations, whether it's buying power over uh, um, power line adapters, yeah, whether I it's did that too, by the way, range power- extenders, yeah. yeah, or whether it's actually biting the bullet and wiring your house, I mean, five hundred bucks is nothing. Yeah, I bought very expensive power line adapters because of this show because my. My office where I record is a, you know, is a corner of the house and I was running power line adapters to get a, a direct connection and the Eero just creams it in terms of bandwidth. If you, you know, if you run a bandwidth test using the Eero system is much faster than power line adapters. So that's another piece of technology I have here that I'm not going to use anymore. Um, a couple of downsides to them. Um, they, they do not have a bunch of ports built in. Each one has two ethernet ports built in. So obviously the the primary one, one of that's going to be dedicated to plugging into your your modem. And so basically that's going to be an in and then one of them can plug into something else. The the other Eros are probably going to connect via Wi-Fi or if you're like me and you have a wired house, you can connect one. Um, you know, you can connect one up uh, to the to the wired connection that you have. And then you do have one other Ethernet port. But if you've got a bunch of devices that you need to connect, you're probably going to need a switch. Um so whether that's an eight port switch or a 16 port switch, like I said, my house is centrally wired to a main. I think I've got a 16 port switch in my laundry room that everything runs back to. So it wasn't a problem for me because I already had a big switch installed. 
But if you've got a bunch of things like in your media cabinet and you're planning on you're currently using the ports in your router, which if you use an Apple router, you're probably not because they've only got two or three ports. Um, you're probably going to need a switch as well. But those are yeah. pretty inexpensive now. Yeah, I think they'll ring you about 30 bucks to get a switch off Amazon. Um, but boy, it, it is way better Internet. And uh, I think we have finally solved the problem of the recurring bandwidth costs on my on my on my cellular bill. Well, that's worth it there. Yeah, it, it is. It's 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 when I first heard about it, I thought, well, what's the difference between this and just an airport extreme that's rebroadcasting? And it's it's way different, you know, and that that's the answer to it. <laughs> uh, I'm very happy to see wireless technologies taking a leap forward. This is, it almost feels like to me. Like when we went from spinning disk to SSD in terms of the difference in speed and reliability for the Internet. Granted, I've only had it running now about a month, but it's just been rock solid. And uh, like you, my all of my various Internet of Things stuff has been more stable. It's just been a really great improvement. Yeah, I, I agree. I've been very happy with it. I was kind of skeptical, but... I just I love where this technology is going. It's it's making it so simple. I, you know, we, we talked about this with the Sonos in the last episode, making, you know, home speaker systems easy now. You know, now we're starting to see wireless go this way. I, I think we're finally starting to see technology solve these problems. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So. OK, well, thanks, Eero, for uh, sending us those units and um, and everybody. It's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. All right, guys. So uh, I think that's going to wrap us up for this episode. Obviously, thank you everyone who sent in feedback for the show. If you've got a comment, a tip on one of our previous episodes, or just something you want to share with the Mac Power Users community at large, you can send that to us to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Obviously, uh, we love those audio comments, but if you can, keep them under two minutes or less, and uh, we'll try to include them in the show. Yeah, and if you have uh, feedback you want to send us otherwise, you can send it over Twitter. We are at Mac Power Users. Katie's at Katie Floyd. I'm at Max Sparky. And you can send us email to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Igloo, SaneBox, Gazelle, and Fujitsu. And we will see you all next time. 